To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. Hello and welcome to the Answers with Joe podcast. This is an actual thing. So today I'm bringing to you uh, an interview that I did with Lance Geiger. Lance Geiger might not be a name you recognize, but you might know him better as the History Guy. That's his channel on YouTube. And I've been following him for a while. Um, it's one of these channels that like, I never really subscribed to it, but every single time it got recommended in my feed on YouTube, I would always wind up clicking on it and watching it. And I really enjoyed it. I thought he, he does a great job of covering stories that you might not have uh, ever heard of before. And he does it in a great, you know, authoritative voice. And he's got this bow tie. He's a great guy. But anyway, um, this is something that I'm hoping to do a little bit more of. Uh, I, I had done this back in the day with this podcast. So if you're listening to this right now, this is only an audio version. I uh, have not been doing a lot of audio only stuff. I've been posting audio versions of the, the videos on the podcast. But um, I'm in this place now where I actually have the ability to get people to return my phone calls <laughs> now that the channel has gotten to a certain size. And one of the coolest things about this is that, you know, I get to, I get to meet really cool people and I didn't want to waste that opportunity because I haven't always had that opportunity. So, uh, one of the first people that I turned to in this, in this, uh, in this vein was, was Lance. I've, I've been watching his channel for a while and with everything that's going on in the world, especially in the United States right now, 2020, just being the year that it is, um, I thought it'd be really cool to talk to a historian or somebody who, who is a fan of history anyway. And so we talked shop a little bit for a while, I guess, if you have absolutely no interest in what it's like to, to run a YouTube channel and stuff that, that might not be of interest to you. I think it's interesting. Um, but, uh, we kind of talk a little shop about being on YouTube, but then we really get into, uh, what's going on in the world these days. We compare it with the, what's going on in the past. And, uh, it was, it was a great conversation and I really, really enjoyed talking to him. We do good at, get into some of the some of the heavier stuff that's going on right now with the, uh, you know, racial injustice and the marches and uh, the election stuff. And just, you know, we, we, we do touch on that a little bit, but I think those are important topics to cover. And I think it's important to cover them in a historical context. And that's why I wanted to talk to him in the first place. So I want to thank Lance for doing this. It was a fantastic time and I really hope we get to do it again, uh, maybe over drinks or something in person, if we can ever do that again. But um, for now, I'm just going to leave it to you. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, this conversation with Lance Geiger. Uh, well, so, so Lance Geiger, that is how you pronounce your last name, right? Like, that is how you pronounce my last name. Like, exactly. the, like the counter, like HR Geiger. Like, like the counter. My, my grandfather always told me that we were related to Hans Geiger, who invented the Geiger counter. My son's uh, very much into genealogy and, and pretty much tells me my grandfather was lying to me, but it is pronounced <laughs> the same way, yes. The grandparents do that a lot, don't they? I guess so. <laughs> I, I grew up thinking that I was like a quarter Irish, and then I found out that like my lineage goes back pre-Civil War here in America. So I'm like just uh, I'm just an American, which was kind of disappointing. I was like I, th I thought I had this like cultural identity, but no, I'm just <laughs> I'm just American. I'm just pale. That's basically all. <laughs> That's true. 
I have that same cultural identity. <laughs> I, I sunburn easily. That's my cultural identity. Right. <laughs> They're a burner. Um, no, I, I really like your channel. I wanted to start by saying yeah. that. Um, in fact, I've kind of pulled it up over here. Just so I just had it in front of me. And uh, as we were, you know, kind of missing each other for a second there, I was like, oh, I want to watch that one. I want to watch that one. I want to watch that one. And, and the funny thing is, I wasn't subscribed to your channel until just very recently because Google started doing that thing where it's like I watched one and they just kind of kept feeding me your videos. Yeah, feeding you others, yeah. yeah, that's how you make your money on YouTube. Yeah, is they keep recommending your videos. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't, I hadn't subscribed because I didn't need to. They just kept sending them to me anyway. So. <laughs> and then I eventually well, realized I'm not subscribed. But that, it's, you know, you, you know, because you do this too. We get paid by who watches it. So subscribers is nice. See, we both have our silver button showing, but uh, uh, it's really who wa watching, watch time that makes the difference for you. And whether yeah. you watch, of course, the ads. Yeah, yeah. So if you sit through the ads, then I'm all thumbs up. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and like, give you a chance to, for anybody who doesn't know your channel somehow, to kind of talk about what you do and how you got started. And okay. tell, me, well, tell I, me the story of the history guy. That can be a long story or that can be a short <laughs> story. But what... What I do, I really consider myself uh, a storyteller more than a historian. Uh, I don't do a lot of primary research. It's mostly what you call secondary research. I look at what other historians have said and kind of mm -hmm. mash that into a story to tell that fits in a 10 to 15 minute time frame. Uh, but I've always just loved history. And I grew up, you know, watching, uh, you know, John Wayne movies and, and uh, World at War and Victory at Sea. My dad watched all of those 50 times. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so I just always thought it was in enjoyable. And I always told stories about history, but I never really did that. I got a degree in history uh, at the mm. University of Colorado, uh, but that's not what I ever did for a living. Uh, and so, but people along the way, I'd just be telling them, hey, did you know this happened here then? And they'd like, you should do that for a living. And I'm like, that'd be great. I wish I had any idea how you could do that for a living. Uh, and so uh, a couple of years ago, I was working for an insurance company and uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, which, I mean, there's, there's ups and downs of the Affordable Care Act. One of the downsides for me is my whole division essentially got laid off because yeah. it, it kind of made part of us redundant. So I, uh, I was planning to stay in industry because I had a lot of experience there and it, things just kind of kept falling through. Mm. I, I mean, I literally had a job where the, the, the hiring manager after the interview said, okay, you can expect a call from HR in the next week with an offer. Uh, and then the offer didn't come. And two weeks later, I sent her a note and she said, oh, you know, about an hour after I said that, we were acquired. <laughs> now okay. people off. So, yeah. so I said, you know, maybe uh, staying where I was isn't the right thing to do. And it, it's not like I was overly passionate about healthcare. Uh, and so I decided, you know, I'll try to, to do it. And it took about, uh, about 18 months uh, before the channel was big enough that it was really producing good income. Mm -hmm. But it, it's been fun from the start. We've loved it from the start. The fans have been great from the start. So that's kind of how it started. This is just the passion I've always had that I never knew how to turn into making a living that kind of yeah. transformed into that. And so now that's what I do. I didn't start off with a bow tie, but now <laughs> where I'm so much people are, I put it on today because people are shocked if they see me without the bow tie. Yeah, it, it's your brand now. They bump into me out in the world. They're like, you're not wearing your bow tie. I'm like, well, I don't usually wear it to the grocery store, you know? Uh, <laughs> me. That's, uh, your, that's so your Superman that's Clark Kent uh, disguise. <laughs> yeah, it is. I can go in disguise. All I have to do is take off the bow tie. It yeah. Works, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask how many you have. How many bow ties I have? Oh gosh, uh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> one of the cool things about what I do and, and uh, is that at some point we we formed a relationship with a company called the Tie Bar. Actually, oh. they have this one. This is actually custom made. The History Guy bow tie. Oh yeah, them. yeah. Yeah, we had that custom made, and so we got in a discussion with them. So now essentially. They send me all the free bow ties I want. Okay. Uh, as long as I put into the thing, you can buy this bow tie at the tie bar. So yeah. I probably had a hundred bow ties before that happened. 
Uh, and and now all I have to do is send a list, you know, 10, 12 ties. If I'm like tired of the ones I got, and they'll send them to me. And it's, so so I have a lot of bow ties. I have many hundreds of bow ties. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know if maybe like people sent you bow ties, like fans uh, and they stuff. They do. Uh, they yeah. send me, I mean, but they've sent me cooler stuff. I mean, I, I do get bow ties now and again. I, I Someone sent me a whole bunch of bow ties his grandfather had worn. And I, you know, I, I think that's uh, really touching. And I've yeah, worn those sure, on set. Yeah. But like someone also sent me that, uh, you see that Russian Meg helmet up there? Yeah, yeah. It's like a space helmet. Someone mailed me that because they were a fan and thought I would like that. So, so I do like bow ties, but I got lots of bow ties. Uh, if you want to mail me a MIG helmet for the set, <laughs> yeah, happily send you a bow tie in return. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever tied a bow. I don't even know how to tie a bow tie. Uh, you know, you do uh, because it's the same knot used to tie your shoe. Oh, really? No, it's a lot easier than it looks. You, you okay. just have to get kind of used to it, but it's a lot easier than it looks. Yeah. It's, I, uh, I used I, to have a little clip on Pretty much anybody can tie their shoe, could tie a bow tie. You just have to practice. But I didn't, I didn't start with a bow tie, actually. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I, I had a vision of what I wanted to, uh, the essential length I wanted to talk about, which was a mm. little, I've gotten a little bit longer since. Originally, I was thinking around five minutes. And the yeah, idea yeah, of just yeah. telling a story, something people probably hadn't heard, telling it with energy, because I think history should be fun. Uh, and I had all that vision, but I didn't really know, you know, what I wanted the set to look like, or I mean, I didn't know anything about video production. Yeah. Uh, and so the the bow tie somewhere somewhere in about the first month, I just wore a bow tie that I had, and because uh, I I do know how to tie them, uh, and uh, <laughs> people kind of liked it. And then since then, it's become such a, a shtick that I I couldn't make an episode without a bow tie. People and when they go see some of the really old episodes, they'll be like, "Where's your bow tie?" Like, well, yeah. you know, I've made five or six episodes without a bow tie. I'm, I'm sorry. So. Well, a bow tie like is pretty simple and, and it's not something that you can like I think if somebody like Gene Shallot who has like this big giant hairdo and giant mustache <laughs> and he's just stuck with that for life you know that's true fashions change yeah. uh, and, and, and you're still stuck with that I said that's a fair point yeah, yeah. this I could keep going with probably yeah <laughs> well I heard that that was the same for uh, Bob Ross oh like yeah, he, yeah like he hated hair his hair, hair. He never change, huh? yeah he, he could never change it that was his brand uh, that's you know but he's Bob Ross, so he can get away with it. Yeah. Uh, on you, it looks good, you know. That's, uh. <laughs> I don't know that I have a specific, I just wear t-shirts. I don't even have button-up shirts anymore. I'm such a slacker, it's terrible. You know, I, that's how most YouTube is. And I have people who are, uh, you know, think it's crazy that I'm wearing a suit. I, the vision of that, I don't know where that really came from, except I'd come from business where you would never talk to a client yeah. without, you know, reasonably formal dress. We don't always have to wear ties. But uh, I kind of had in my mind, like these old style documentaries where you got some dusty old historian and he's sitting, there's all this books and junk in the background, which I had a lot of books and junk already in the background. Yeah. And, you know, they always seem like they're a little bit out of their own era. And that's kind of what I was looking at. And so the bow ties kind of kind of fit with that. And I, I like yeah. them. I do. Uh, so uh, so I'm, I, I, it's cool that I have a job where I can wear a bow tie and not have too many people make fun of me. Some, some still do, but... Well, I think, you know, it works if you're like a history, it kind of gives you a little bit of gravitas, you know, and, and it is a nice it, branding feature. So, yeah. Now it's our, I mean, our logo, which, I, which yeah. one of the things you learn is you start to take this stuff. I had never idea that I would ever trademark it. I now have a trademark logo and have a copyright and all this stuff. Yeah. It was all weird before. Uh, yeah. But our logo is the bow tie with the, with the THP. So, I mean, it's now become such a part of it that, I mean, I couldn't remove it. So, yeah. uh, and that's, I mean, that's, that's cool. It's, you have to have something that people recognize it for, I guess. Well, what's funny is in my little logo, um, I'm wearing glasses, and I never wear glasses anymore. Oh. <laughs> you know? Um, you can really go out incognito then. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm, in the videos, I never wear my glasses. And in fact, this camera messes up whenever I wear my glasses because it's got the face recognition focus thing. Oh, uh -huh. And when the, the glare from the lights hits just right, it all goes out of focus. 
took me a long time to figure out what was going on. I'm, I'm, there's a fix to it, but the easier yeah. fix well, is just to not wear get, my glasses. That's another thing. Yeah, you don't you don't come on realizing how cameras work and how yeah I've had yeah. those same issues. I just I literally couldn't see anything but kind of a mix of colors on the screen right now if I didn't have my glasses on. Yeah, so same here. They are they do glare sometimes, I, but uh, I I just can't go without them. I really can't see. Yeah. These are these are trifocals. <laughs> I'm, I'm not there like yet. Five now. I'm wondering if we could get to the, what a quint focals is. I feel like. Yeah, I'm already doing the thing where I'm this, you know, <laughs> somebody hands me something. I'm like, ah. great. I love aging. Um, well, so so you were you were saying that you you um, you did major in history in, in college, but but outside I, I, of that, I there have, wasn't like any. I, my BA. I've I've degrees in history yeah. and political science from the University of Colorado. Uh, and then I did graduate, uh, my graduate school, my master's is in communication, speech communication at the University gotcha. of Wyoming. Uh, I taught at university for several years, but as a, uh, I taught public speaking and I was a coach of a collegiate debate team is what I did. Okay. Uh, so I didn't actually ever teach history, except that I managed to work a lot of history into teaching speech. I, I tell you that. <laughs> I had a history of speech class actually even, uh, but it was never, never what I did at university. And then when I, when I left from the university and went into the corporate world, uh, it was because I had these presentation skills. And so it was nothing related to history at all. I mean, I worked at Merrill Lynch and I worked at Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And so they didn't let me come in and talk history. <laughs> I'll tell you the history of insurance. Yeah. Oh no, I, I was curious about that because there, there are some, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you consider yourself to be an expert on history at this point? Like I, that's kind of how I'm framing I mean, you in my head. Yes and no. I mean, clearly I've, I've researched some 500 topics enough sure. to talk to yeah. them intelligently. And I, I have people who are, everything you do, you know, I put up three episodes a week. Uh, so I've got two. I know. I don't know how you do that. that. I'm moving to something else, and you'll have someone who spent the last ten years researching that and writing their book yeah. on it. Uh, and so you run into people, and they'll say, "Oh, you maybe you got this wrong or that right." But a very most of the time, people who were there or people who are professional historians about it say, "Yeah, you're getting this this right." So, yeah, I mean, I think of myself as an expert on history, but I, I wouldn't uh, I I wouldn't try to compare myself to a PhD. I wouldn't try to sure. compare myself to someone who's writing a book length publication and. And he said, the only, the only thing I do that's really primary research is I do, because it's fairly easy these days, I do a lot of digging through period newspapers and seeing what newspapers said at the time. But uh, I rarely have time to interview someone that was there or something like that. And so I'm, I'm really a storyteller is what I think of myself yeah. as. Uh, but I also, I mean, someone asked my, what my career is, I would say I'm an internet historian. Sure. Yeah. But I, I think that, that, that storyteller definitely comes through. Um, I, so, so my dad was a history teacher. And, uh, and I actually took classes from him because I grew up in this really small town and he was the only guy in middle <laughs> school that was teaching so, or teaching history. So, um, but he's definitely one of these like names and dates and battles and just, you know, one of those guys. And, but that always bug, bug me because I mean, history is the great story, you know, it, it, yeah. it is, it is storytelling, you know, at its purest I, form. I and, there's reasons academic history does that. I mean, because academic history is much more looking at, you know, broad events and impacts and, and uh, cause and effect uh, as it looks at a flow. So uh, broadly, history at an academic level isn't really told as a story. Right. Uh, and there's, there's reason for that. I mean, I had a guy, I had a history teacher in college. He had this book that had turned yellow. He had been using it for so long, the pages had turned yellow. And he would sit and read these pages that he was reading to our grandparents. Uh, and yeah. uh, and I, I and he was wearing the same suit too. I'm, I'm quite sure his suit was not <laughs> of the same era that I was living in. Uh, and uh, and I learned from him, but uh, but you're right. He didn't think history was was uh, was supposed to be interesting. But I've just always thought. I mean, we have 
there are so many stories of history that are more compelling than stuff than superhero movies that we're seeing. I mean, mm -hmm. just amazing things, stories that are, that are compelling, they're dramatic or they're humorous or they're touching. There's heroes and there's villains and they're real heroes and real villains yeah. and real people with real fallibility. And they're just great stories. Right. And, and I've always loved telling them. And so I, part of the goal of my channel is to tell them with the passion that I feel for history. And I have some people say, oh, you're yelling at me. Uh, and I'm like, it's because I'm <laughs> legit excited about what's going on. So, I mean, there's plenty of history out there. If you want someone who's going to drone on about history, usually in an English accent, uh, there's plenty of that out there. If you want dispassionate history, I'm not trying to downspeak that. It's just that my feeling is the reason people said you should do this for a living is because my eyes would light up when I do it. And I want to keep doing this as long as my eyes still light up. Yeah, I like, I like, I like the way you said that. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I kind of came into this as a, it was supposed to be a comedy channel. And somehow I became a science communicator with a little bit of comedy in there. But, um, but yeah, same kind of deal. Like, it's just something I enjoy and I'm just super thankful I get to do it. You know, it's, it's a and, rare you know, thing. People need someone that can bring some humor to science and can make it more approachable to someone who doesn't see themselves as a scientist. I mean, I do yeah. some science stuff too. Uh, and, and it's not always easy for me because that's not what I studied in college. And right. I have to really go and learn that. But the thing is, I know I'm talking to people like me. Uh, who want to know things about you know helium or transistors or all the stuff that we've talked about on the channel uh, and so it's 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 a more important talent than people realize mm. to be able to talk science to people who are not scientists and frequently that's someone like you know neil degrasse tyson or something like that who's a, a, a scientist who's pretty good at talking to people right. but you can also have someone who's a non-scientist who's pretty good at listening to a scientist and translating that to you know our people <laughs> the, right. the non-scientists of the world. And I think that's a great talent. I think you're, you're serving a great service. So something intended to be a humor channel that comes out being a science channel, that's exactly what YouTube is about. And that's exactly why you can succeed in YouTube. And it plays an incredible service that was kind of missing before YouTube. Mm. There just wasn't a place for it. And now yeah. you have people who are like, I really wanted to understand that. And I could not understand it in college physics. And I understand it because of Joe. And that's something just to be proud of. Oh. Uh, especially since there's mo so many people on YouTube that are making their money because they went to the library and belched, you know. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Since I, I there's like people on YouTube who are just, you know, just trying to terrify their children with a, with a prank <laughs> or something, uh, you know, sometimes, and I don't mean to downspeak any channel on YouTube, <laughs> but sometimes I can say that I'm actually proud of the content that we've produced. I think it yeah. you know, contributes. You're doing that. And that's, that's laudable. That's heroic. It's something to, you know, to not to downspeak at all. Heroic. Wow. Really? I'm going to be walking a little bit taller today now that you've said that. Well, you should. You, you, you perform a valuable service. <laughs> well, it's kind of like what I was asking earlier, if, I, if you consider yourself to be an expert, because um, I, I feel like sometimes people consider me to be an expert because I talk about a lot of this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I, I have to spend a couple of weeks researching this just, to, mm -hmm. so, just so I can understand it. But I think if I have a superpower on YouTube or in my communication style is that if I can get myself to understand it, then I can get other people to understand it because I'm not that's, an expert, you know. It's an important skill. I mean, that's what I taught in college and it's an, mm -hmm. it's an important skill. Uh, and, and I think that I'm, I, without trying to blow my horn, horn too much, I think I'm pretty good at taking something fairly complex mm -hmm. and making sense of it in a way for an audience that's not necessarily technical experts. That's something I did do when I was in business. I mean, a lot of what mm -hmm. I did in healthcare was trying to take very complex concepts and make them meaningful to a client that doesn't really, I mean, they do something other, they might do amazing stuff, but they don't do healthcare. Uh, and so that talent, you know, translates here. Uh, and yeah. if you ask them, I'm an expert, I'm, I'm probably a relative expert on whatever I talked about this morning. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'll be a relative expert on something else 
come Friday uh, and, uh, and you know in between uh, if we start getting into some of the, uh, of the episodes and stuff I, I will say I'll probably get some dates and things wrong because we've sure. talked about some close to 600 things now uh, so even I forget I'll be like flipping through and I'm like oh I forgot that one yeah so so you've been doing this for just a couple of years right since March of 17th when I posted my first video yeah yeah okay so I've been I, I kind of got serious about it in the fall of 2014 so I've just kind of been doing this slow burn for a while but um it's funny because I, it's happened a few times now where I'll like get started working on a video and then realize, oh, I already did a video about this. <laughs> and you know how I found out? Because I went on YouTube to do a, a search on who's, you know, on, on, the, on the video topic and my video comes out. And like, you find oh, well, yourself. <laughs> it's like, that's where I am now. It's like when I do research, my own stuff comes up. It's so weird. Ah, well, it's, I mean, that shows how, how broad it is. It's, it's really interesting because if this was a, a television show, I mean, a good television show gets maybe 100 episodes, a really, really good show. Right, yeah. Uh, this goes on for a decade. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, it's, you know, we're in, you know, it, in terms of number of episodes, we're in like meet the press range for the number of episodes. Been done. So it's well, easy to forget everything that you've done, yeah. You sew more than me. I don't know how you do three videos a week. That blows my mind. I did two for a while, for a good while, and now I'm down to one. And I still am like, I don't know, I, I'm still cranking at the last minute trying to get them out. So you must have a flow or a system going on. That's I, no, I am the least organized person you will ever. I meet. can't imagine that. I'll have, I'll have sponsors <laughs> sometimes saying, "Hey, what are you going to be talking about when you have the sponsored episode in two weeks?" I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about in two days. What are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, I, I can put together an episode in a, I say a day, I mean, that means I'll probably be working on it from about eight in the morning to about eight at night, so about 12 hours, but, mm. uh, I, and it is, yeah, it's a grind. I mean, I tell people that too, that, because uh, people ask, you know, what's your day job? And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell them what I'm making because I think they'll probably get mad at me. But, uh, I uh, but when I, when I talk about being successful on YouTube, it's a job and you got to treat it like a job. And it turns out for me that if I'm doing uh, the work of a job, and I've never had a job that just took 40 hours, and this one takes more than that, uh, but if I do the work of a job and think of it like a job, it's a very good living, and that's that's kind of how I do it. I, I say that I'm pretty much working every every Sunday to get the Monday episode up, so I pretty much yeah. work six days a week, yeah. uh, and I very often work into evenings, but you know, that's how we do it. Uh, my wife would prefer I cut back to two episodes a week, and we might end up doing that. Um, now, do right you now, the... on, and once you get used to it and you, you get addicted to the views, uh, then oh, it's yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it really hard to scale back, and the algorithm doesn't like it either. So, I mean, we had a point for about a month and a half where we would do three regular episodes and do a short episode on, on, on Tuesday and Thursday. So, I was putting up five a week. Oh, god, yeah, it didn't work so well for us, yeah. Uh, and, and you're writing them all yourself. Uh, no, I mean, I write uh, yeah, more than half now today, probably about two thirds of the episodes on there I wrote, but okay. uh, for a long time, my wife, Heidi, who we talk about in a lot of our media uh -huh. wrote episodes, she's kind of moved away from that. And, and what I would say is that uh, this is my passion. It's not necessarily her passion. She's a great writer, but she's writing other stuff now. Still very involved in the channel. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, now uh, my son, who's a graduate of the University of Wyoming, uh, is, is almost 30, and he's taken over some of the writing. And so okay. he writes about one in three episodes. Uh, okay. And then uh, I have a smattering of other, I mean, it's all closely held. It's like really close friends or family who yeah. have written some episodes here and there. So, so about every, every given week, I'll put up three episodes. Usually two of those will be mine and one of those will be written by someone else. Uh, and that's part of what makes it possible to do you know, sure. three a week. Yeah. I, you I, have if an I editor? was researching all three, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Do you have an editor? No, just me. Wow. Okay. I do the taping. 
Uh, I do yeah. the editing, video process it. I use PowerDirector. Uh, I find the media. Uh, so uh, aside from, in terms of production of the videos, aside from some script writing, uh, pretty much yeah. it's me. Uh, and then my wife is really good. She's got training in search engine optimization. So she'll do oh, okay. usually the thumbnail and she'll do a lot of the keywords and stuff like that. But uh, the, you know, uh, all the editing, all that, that's just me and, and the same computer we're on right now. Herculean. Superhuman. <laughs> It's fun. There are days when I'm just pounding my head into the desk trying to find media to fill it. I mean, some, oh, I'm sure. some of them there's a lot and some of them there's nothing, but uh, I, I enjoy it. I still love this job. Yeah, I have trouble with that too. And, and I was thinking like yours, yours seem to be a lot more kind of um, voiceover, like footage and pictures and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I know that there's a lot of times where I'm talking about something and just a few lines are just a few, just a little bit too difficult to talk into the camera and I have to like guy like I'll, I'll try it a few times and, and I, I do have an editor and I'm like Nick I've just got to read this one I can't you know but then <laughs> you'll have trouble finding stuff to put on top of it and sometimes you have to dig into stupid looking stock footage and whatnot but it can be hard and if you have to pay for it uh, I mean the charge I mean even like one Getty image is going to be kind of what you make on a video so yeah it's really difficult uh, and so we spend a lot of time, sometimes we're lucky, like we did one last week about the Indianapolis 500, where we were privileged to work with the museum, uh, the Indianapolis 500 Museum, and oh, the foundation cool. and the Speedway. And that was, the coordination was crazy, but they were able to provide us footage. That's really, really cool. Uh, but uh, uh, outside of that, sometimes, I mean, if it's, I talk a lot of military topics, if, uh, if mm -hmm. a soldier filmed that, uh, or a U.S. government employee filmed it as part of their, uh, their government job, it's, it's public domain. Sometimes it's really easy. I have tons of video and things to use. But if it's if it's post nineteen twenty five, so that you know it, it, things pre nineteen twenty five, anything that was published prior to nineteen twenty five is usually public domain. Right. So if it's if it's after nineteen twenty five, it wasn't done by the government. Uh, then I'm you know uh, I'm struggling. And if you watch really carefully, you'll see that I did some videos without a single picture of the events I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so that's and that can be uh, that could sometimes that's more time than the research is to just find yeah. something to fill it up with. Yeah, totally. Well, I would like to know if there's been a topic that you've covered that uh, in your research and in the process of making it just surprised you or changed the way you thought about something. Um, oh, you know, all the time, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, the when I'm doing forgotten history, quite often it's me stumbling upon something where I'm said I. I had no idea that happened. And then I, then I go and research it. So, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's, I have a lot of examples of that, but I mean, one of them is the Speedway one last week, which I really enjoyed making because it was the, the historian there, uh, Donald Davidson at the, at the Indianapolis Museum. He does, he does like radio shows every night and he's been the track historian since the 1960s. Uh, and so he really knows people that were really involved. It goes all the way. And he's been doing this for, for now 60 years. Uh, and uh, I had no, I'm not a race guy. I'm not a, yeah. my mother likes NASCAR. Uh, 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 she, she likes Martin Truex, so we, we, she sends us a note and we say, go faster, Martin. That's, a, that's my entire understanding of racing. Uh, <laughs> and so that one, it was really interesting to do that sort of primary research. And I really, I had, I, and even though I, the, Indiana used to be part of my, uh, my business, I used to go do a lot of business in Indiana, I really had no idea how important the Speedway was to Indiana and Indianapolis mm. and, and the history of how that, you know, built that town and how people see it. Uh, and so it was really shocking to me to find out that the, after World War II, they almost turned it into a housing development and what it means to, and so that, I mean, that is just a regular episode. And it really did change my understanding of the city and the people of that city. And it's something that I, you know, didn't pay a lot of attention to. I, I can't say I was an Indy 500 fan, uh, but I can say I'm very much a fan of the history of the Indianapolis 500. It's amazing. 
So, I mean, that happens to me quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of it is very eye-opening. One of our earlier episodes that my wife wrote was on uh, a, uh, the Los Angeles Chinese massacre uh, and, and stuff, events I really, I really had no idea that this yeah. occurred. And I think it surprised people even in Los Angeles that these yeah. events had occurred. Uh, and we run into those quite a lot. So, I mean, history is a compelling story. And if you didn't know the story before, when you get it, it really, it really is compelling. So I, I guess pretty much every episode, very rarely am I writing on something that I already had so much experience in that it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And you do tend to focus on, like you just said, forgotten history, stuff that, mm -hmm. you know, isn't out there in the, in the mainstream. And, and yep, you mentioned the, the uh, what do you call it? The Chinese? The Los Angeles Chinese Massacre. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, that wasn't unique uh, to the U.S. because there were Chinese massacres actually in Canada and, and mm. in Mexico, and there was quite a lot of anti-Chinese uh, sentiment in Australia at the time, too. And what's going on, I mean, people don't realize this, is at the period of the U.S. Civil War, uh, there was a civil war going on in China that, that, uh, that co-occurred, but actually was, was 10 years long. It killed more people than the First World War, uh, the, the okay. Taiping Rebellion. And so uh, the, China was bleeding, uh, mostly people you would call peasants. They had almost no education. Uh, and they were just trying to get out of China. There was either no employment or there was just death and destruction. Uh, and so that, that, you know, that kind of flooded, uh, you know, the, the Pacific Rim with people that were largely low-skilled labor. Uh, and that started to create a nativist backlash. And uh, that's it's something, you know, we, there was a period when kind of America all agreed, okay, we have handled the Native Americans. Uh, we're tolerating that black people are free, though we don't really want to be equal with them. And we've decided that we're just kind of ignore now that we got so many people from Eastern Europe, but we really hate the Chinese. Uh, we, that's, that was this point in, in US history. Uh, and, yeah. and so we passed laws to exclude Chinese coming to America. And th there were various reasons for it. I mean, part of it was it was more, I mean, uh, you know, the, there's a lot more cultural similarity between someone who immigrated from Germany and someone who immigrated from uh, 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 Ireland than there was between someone who, either of those uh, with someone who had come from China. I mean, language was different and culture was different. Yeah. And it was a kind of an insular culture. They tended to hang together. And so people saw them as, as different. Uh, and so a piece of violence in Los An early Los Angeles uh, uh, turned into the, essentially the European population uprising and murdering a whole bunch of Chinese people. I had no idea that it happened. I don't yeah. think a lot of people in Los Angeles had any idea that it happened. And it's, it's kind, I mean, there's a lot of dark points in history that we don't talk much about and that anti-Chinese sentiment, taking it to the level where they were literally just burning down the buildings with families inside is something that really surprised people. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't, I mean, I just see, I mean, history is history. I don't see that as a judgment on the nation. I see it as something that occurred in the flow of history uh, but it was a terrible, terrible thing. And I had no idea that it happened. And, uh, and I think that's one of the first episodes where we started getting a lot of views on that episode. And it shows that, you know, people also didn't know. So all the time we run into things that surprise me and that I didn't know and, and that are just, the story is just, it's shocking. Uh, but it's also like, how could this story not be told? How do we not know this happened? Yeah. Well, especially that, that dark stuff that we don't want to think about gets swept under the rug pretty Pretty thoroughly. I mean, some things do too. I mean, one of our most popular episodes was on this guy named Horace Devere Cole, who just pulled pranks uh, in turn of the century London. And he, he, he literally pretended, he got a bunch of friends together who pretended to be the uh, a diplomatic team from Abyssinia and managed to convince the Royal Navy to take them on a tour of the, uh, of the HMS Dreadnought. Uh, and I mean, and this guy's, well, he's another one. I mean, so it's a great story that, that yeah. we don't hear about very much that doesn't happen to be, you know, a horrible thing too. So, so you, and all of those events have, have meaning. So it doesn't have to be something, 
you know, terrifying, but uh, sometimes yeah. those things that are, that are really terrifying that you gosh, you know, you can see why people don't want to talk about that mm -hmm. uh, just because it's so terrible, but you can see why it's important that we do. And that's, I mean, that's the fun of what I'm doing. So uh, you, you've got a little different focus on your channel, but I imagine you run into things all the time that are like, wow, this is really interesting. People should know this. And, and that's yeah. fun. That's cool. And we're bringing that to people. Well, the, the one that I'm specifically thinking of that I did was um, not that long ago. Well, time doesn't mean anything anymore. I don't know when this was, but I guess it was <laughs> earlier this year. Um, but it was on airships, <laughs> zeppelins and blimps and the, the whole history there. And uh, it's one of my favorite ones that I've done recently anyway, because like in the process of making it, I was like, this is so cool. I, I'd never really <laughs> thought about how cool it would have been to have like been on a on a, on a zeppelin going across the atlantic on the, you know? on the wrong trip but uh, yeah it would have been cool. i live uh, near scott air force base about a couple of miles away from here it was built as a zeppelin base and, right and and uh, it's it's amazing when you see if you're just outside of houston you can see there's these two really really tall towers that make no sense you're like what are those things well they're actually the leftover doors from an airship hangar uh, from an army air force air force airship hangar and when you get the idea of the scale of that you're like yeah. what must that have been like yeah. yeah so i've done i've done airships too and some i did the shenandoah which which uh, crashed in ohio and, and you know killed the crew or uh, uh the the uh, uh, i think it was called the i'm gonna probably get this wrong i think it was called the m8 but there was a there was a a, a smaller airship out of san francisco that just left with two guys on it and an anti-submarine patrol in the second world war came back empty and we never know what happened to these two guys it's oh, i haven't heard that one wow mystery and and so uh, yeah it is it's extraordinary you know, to think uh, something that would dwarf uh, a, a, a the largest aircraft that you've ever seen, yeah. and people hopped on that thing and they floated across the oceans and they and they you know they bombed the during the war they bombed with the things and after the war yeah. they were the thing that we had that would cross the oceans and yeah they're extraordinary uh, and turned out to be pretty darn dangerous too you know yeah. they, uh, <laughs> well and I, I in in the process of you know researching it and putting the script together I started putting myself in the shoes of somebody in the early 1900s or even late 1800s, whatever, where um, they'd never seen anything floating in the sky before. You know, yeah. we, we see airplanes all the time now and don't think anything of it, but like they'd never seen anything before. And suddenly there's these giant freaking yeah. metal whales like just yeah, floating around. Yeah, buildings. Yeah, they're yeah. just floating over, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine how impactful that, that was and how, how, um, how much that like affected the culture and stuff. You and know? It, it was extraordinary technology for its day. Yeah. I mean, now we almost think of them as like vintage, but I mean, imagine how high tech that appeared. It's, that's like a spaceship, you know, how, how could we make totally. that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, I, I loved that one. I mean, just like every once in a while, I don't know if you ever do that. Every once in a while I go back and just watch that video. It's just like, that was just so cool. <laughs> like I just learned something there. You know, I didn't, I didn't know about that. Yeah. It happens. It happens to me too. And yeah. that's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's this part of the reason the job's fun. Yeah. Well, so there was a, a video I ran across of yours recently on, uh, I think you did it pretty recently. It was on Johnny Appleseed? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a, a friend in Boston uh, and he works retail. So he, his, his hours have been significantly reduced. Mm. And so I said, why don't you, uh, I've known him for years. I said, why don't you write me a couple episodes? And so he wrote the Johnny okay. Appleseed episode. And he also wrote one on the uh, the molasses flood, the Boston molasses flood. I did uh, see that one. Yeah, yeah. Where he was out there. Yeah. So so Dario, call out to Dario if uh, he's around. He's the one that wrote that. Uh, and it's uh, that was one. I mean, I I kind of hadn't written because I thought everybody was familiar with Johnny Appleseed. And then his script came in, and we just had a lot of interesting things to say about it. It's been it's done really well. 
and it's, it was a lot of fun to you know yeah. find out the real story. And it's kind of interesting because I had done one before on the history of apples, uh, as yeah. you know, human history with apples. And so it was really interesting to dovetail the two and see how he you know brought it through America. And really an extraordinary person uh, and uh, yeah. kind of a surprising one. And it was really fun to go dig into some of the period newspapers that when they were talking about uh, Chapman and all that he was doing because oh, they, cool. they really had a, kind of an interesting view of the man. Yeah. Well, I felt it's kind of weird because because yours came out and uh, which one? I think uh, today I found out one of Simon Whistler's uh, channels, like within a couple of days, you guys both released it at the same time, which has happened really? to me where I, I've covered oh, a topic yeah. and like the day before I put it out and I've, I've already put all this work into it. Some other big channel, else does, the yeah. very same topic. I'm like, oh man. You can't, well, I mean, it's YouTube. There's like a million hours of YouTube uploaded yeah. every minute. So, I mean, there's, there's uh, every once in a while I find something where I have a topic and I go look it up and I can't find a, a YouTube video. I'm always like, whoa, how did that happen? So, uh, but the, the, what my YouTube rep, I don't know if you have a YouTube rep. I actually have a YouTube person now. Yeah, and yeah. she always says to me, Lance, no one owns history. Uh, and yeah. I'm like, oh, that's a fair point. And no one owns, no one owns science. So I, I, I couldn't watch through all the channels like mine and try to avoid whatever topics they've talked about. I mean, I couldn't get, get my job done if I did that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But I, I, if someone else put up Johnny Appleseed right next to mine, I wouldn't have known. I probably would have noticed. And occasionally I have someone say, oh, so-and-so just did that. And I'm like, oh, I've never heard of so-and-so. So I'll yeah. go check out theirs. And, well, I mean, it, it happens often that I'll, I'll watch a video on something and then the algorithm sends me another video about it. You know, yeah, so yeah. that's not too surprising, but the, I, I was, I was kind of shocked that both of them came out at the same time, pretty, pretty much like within a few days of each other. And, and, and then it just kind of like, not to, not to plant an apple seed in my brain, but it planted a <laughs> seed in my brain about Johnny Appleseed. And I was like, just thinking about it like a lot. And, and, I don't know. It just kind of felt like is is Johnny Appleseed having a moment right now? What's what's happening? <laughs> I have no I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if there's some reason that people are looking at Johnny Appleseed. I don't know. I, I we did one a couple of years ago on uh, a guy that actually grew up very near where I live now. Uh, the, called the Alton Giant, Robert Wadlow, who's the tallest yeah, yeah, man yeah. in recorded human history. And recently, that that episode has been getting as many views as if we just uploaded it. Even went up, it went up. I think December of eighteen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have no idea why. I don't oh, yeah. know what's sparking uh, interest in it. But you know, once once YouTube thinks, oh, you know, they like giants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they start getting nothing but giants episodes. And you know, I know, yeah, that's I how it a, works. I have a video right now that's doing that. Uh, that that was released, I think, at the end of last year. And now, for some reason, it's just. Well, it's it's about why whales explode, why beached whales oh, explode. Why beached whales explode. That's very yeah. interesting. I have to go check that one out. I'll put that one on my list. I mean, I guess it's I guess it's a fun video, but it's blowing up again. God, I'm <laughs> terrible with the puns today. Not normally this bad. Um, but uh, no, it's funny how YouTube does that. It just kind of decides. Yeah, no idea why. Something two, three, five years ago, and you know, there's some there's some channels that can't do that. Your stuff goes, you know, goes old very quickly. But I mean, the cool mm -hmm. thing about history and science is that it'll still be history and science. Yeah. And so uh, people can see something from a few years ago, and sometimes think. I mean, my first episode on the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, uh, I put up in early 2018. So I clearly mm -hmm. predicted coronavirus coming uh, so my episode was fully up when everybody was like oh let's go find something like coronavirus yeah yeah uh, and of course it's gotten a lot more views since and so sometimes you know there's you can see why i mean this is why that happened sure. but sometimes you're like i have no idea why this episode that sat for months without anybody watching it now has lots and lots of people yeah. watching it. well i imagine especially if you're covering history i mean history does kind of repeat itself quite a bit and and certain topics kind of come up in the in the uh, I mean, zeitgeist I think or whatever. Mine's almost completely because no matter what I 
take. I mean, I could be talking about Rome, you know, 3,000 years ago. One of the first 10 comments is going to compare it to Donald Trump or, or Clinton or someone. Right? Well, so so it's, history always repeats itself in the mind of some people. I cannot make an episode that doesn't end up turning into current politics like instantly yeah. in chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, there certainly are uh, the, the uh, pandemic of 1918. It's really interesting. If you look at like newspapers at the time, um, ministers are complaining that they've shut down churches and not bars. And I'm like, yeah, that's a discussion we're having right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there was discussion over how effective masks were. And, and they were uh, anti-mask leaves. You know, uh, it came back in, in 1919 and people just refused to go back into quarantine. They were just tired of quarantine. Yeah. And so they just had a mask mandate and it was, was insufficient by itself. And so it's interesting to look at it because the discussions that we're having now uh, even though it was different, uh, uh, the, I mean, the, the influenza epidemic was, was very different than COVID in a number of ways. But I mean, the discussions we're having now, they had the same discussion you know, with our great grandparents in 1918. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of surprising that all the, the cultural disruption we're seeing now was so, the attitudes were so very similar. Then. Yeah, uh, and some of the same divisions, and, and they didn't even have the web to have these fights. I mean, they, they, <laughs> imagine if they had the web, then we would have had the same. You know, it would look very much like what's going on today. They had to be face to face, which probably just spread the pandemic. Yeah, it was just spread it more. Yeah, that's yeah. It. so they're giving each other the flu while they were yelling about it. Yeah. Well, that's a good jumping off point because I did want to kind of um, specifically just talk about. Um, so you did a video recently about the history of the history of Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. and how our interpretation of history changes over time, yep, uh, according yeah. to what's going on in the current, you know, uh, social yeah, norms and whatnot. It's impacted by changes in, in archaeology and things we find, but then those are interpreted through the lens, through the prism of the politics right. of the time. It's called historiography, and it happens quite a lot, yeah. Historiography is that what you call it? Historiography is that, that oh, okay. historiography is the study of history. It's the meta version of history. Got it. But we see we we always see events through the lens of what's going on now. Historical events, and so you might find out one different thing, and then you'll have someone who will give you a completely different interpretation. And then 50 years later, you look back and say their interpretation was also representative not just of the history, but of the what was going on when totally. they when they wrote that history. And it's it's really is interesting. I, yeah, I, I strive to avoid historiography. I, my, my philosophy is that the history is the history, and I don't want to interpret. I want to leave it up to the audience to interpret sure. it, uh, but it, you, it's impossible to avoid because everything that you're going to collect is going to come, you know, not just through your lenses, but through the lenses of the people who put it wherever you found it. Yeah. And you, certainly if I'm working from period newspapers, I mean, they, you know, they, newspapers today spin, you know, right? So they, they were spinning just as much 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And I, I, you know, I'm taking those as the best source I've got, but I mean, we all know anybody who's ever been involved knows they can write a newspaper story about you and somewhere around 30% is not going to be quite right. Yeah. Uh, and they, <laughs> they're really trying. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, and then we're using those to write history. So it is, yeah. it is interesting. And that was a very interesting episode because the, you know, the vision of what it was changed. I mean, we're talking historiography that goes back 2000 years. It is ancient yeah. history that they were studying Stonehenge is how old it was. And so it's really yeah. fascinating to see, you know, the Romans were like, oh, this is a temple to Apollo. Gotta be, you know, because it's the, that's the only thing that makes sense. And it, yeah. you know, it's a thousand years before, you know, who knows what they were thinking on the, on the Salisbury, Salisbury. I pronounced that wrong. They were mad at me. It's, uh, <laughs> I was saying Salisbury and I think it's Salisbury. I don't know. I can't even try. Uh, but uh, that what, what, you know, what they were thinking in England was probably very different, but the Romans saw it through the, through the guise of what the Romans would see. And now we're looking at Romans interpreting, you know, ancient Britons. And that's a really interesting way to see history and, and yeah. how far back that goes. Yeah. Well, and, and, and something that I just kind of, you know, 
gets impressed on me with age, I suppose. But it, it's, you know, again, going back to when, when you learn uh, history in school and it's names and dates and you're falling asleep and whatnot, the, the older I get, the more I appreciate history because it is an active thing. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and it, and it changes and our interpretation of it changes. And, and we're seeing a lot of that happening right now with like the, the BLM Absolutely. protests and a lot the of social upheaval and everything. And, and, and if someone doesn't like it, they're going to tell you it's revisionist history. Uh, and of course, all history is revisionist history in, in some ways, but it does change. I just did one uh, on Monday, was it on Monday? I think it was, on the Gatsby Affair, which was this affair where Rhode Islanders burned a British I just saw that uh, one, yeah. customs vessel. Uh, and it, one of the things about the Gatsby Affair is it's a great study in historiography because it's, it's been leveraged so, so many times. So if you look in the, the uh, 1840s, uh, New Englanders were uh, trying to say that uh, the, the, the revolution started in New England, uh, not in Virginia. Uh, and the reason right. that they were doing that is because of the, the, the tensions that were leading up to the Civil War. And they were trying to say that the revolution was an, an, against uh, uh, the, you know, the British rule, not the slavery thing. And so, so New Englanders rediscovered the Gatsby Affair, which no one had really been talking about it, as a way to say, hey, look, this came from us. Uh, and that's, you can clearly see how they have taken this piece of history and interpreted it through time. And if you go 50 years later, after the Civil War, uh, then the Gatsby Affair is largely being interpreted to say, you know, what's special about the Gatsby Affair is that it wasn't a, a, a rebellion against English culture. It was a rebellion against the specific misbehavior of these British uh, Royal Navy guys. And so what it says is it was really embracing English rules of law and et cetera. And the reason for that was in the 1870s, we were starting to get a lot of mass immigration from like Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. And they were trying to reinforce the British character of America in order to sort of denigrate the culture of the new immigration that was coming in uh, mm. through the Gatsby affair. And you just contrast those two because there's 50 years in between on the same event and they're seeing it very, very differently. And that has continued to go on. I mean, the most recent interpretation, uh, uh, one of the more recent interpretations of the Gatsby affair was that it was related to slavery, which is something no one ever talked about until the, you know, the 2000s when someone had made that connection. And, and some of that is changes in understanding of the history and events we find ourselves out, but a lot of it simply has to do with the filter of what's important to culture at the time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's been interesting. Um, well, just in the past, past five years, I'm thinking of the, the, uh, the play Hamilton, right? So mm -hmm. when it came out in 2015, uh, you know, you had people of color playing the the founding fathers and it was kind of considered revolutionary and and i know mm -hmm. that one of the actors and i can't think of his name right now but he was talking about how like it was really impactful for, to him because it was like for the first time he felt like he kind of owned this this history you know and yeah and it was yeah, kind of reframed was, in this spoke to the whole nation it wasn't just white people doing this right. and, and part of that was the nature of hamilton himself his history but part of it was this idea that their vision was actually multicultural that was groundbreaking at the time and and now that's offending some some people yeah right that's what i was about to get to was like now um when it came out on disney plus and everybody was kind of watching it again just in the last five years the interpretation of of, of that play mm -hmm. has shifted quite a bit and and i've heard the term minstrel show used uh -huh. to describe it and it's just like yeah wow. yeah now suddenly i mean it was groundbreaking to have uh, you know a, a black man playing hamilton and now now right. suddenly uh that's uh, there's you know there's something untoward about that and that's a very yeah. quick shift and it yeah. is, I mean, part of that is the nature of media and et cetera. And part of that is the nature of just the politics of the time. And, and I don't think it's widespread. I think most people still, you know, love Hamilton. But it's, it's interesting to me. I, I, don't, I don't like to get into modern politics at all. But it's interesting sure. in that initially, 
conservatives were kind of put off by having people of color playing, you know, people who weren't, you know, who were white at the time. Yeah, yeah. And now conservatives are the ones defending Hamilton. And it's kind of <laughs> funny how in just a few years, yeah. you've, you've made that shift. Uh, and it's it's interesting. And so you can look back at things. I mean, imagine like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was one of the most popular books in American history, right. and how differently that is perceived today and what that means. Or Gone with the Wind. I mean, that's another one recently. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the best film ever and everybody yeah. watched it. It was one of the best films ever. And now suddenly it's got to have a disclaimer at the front. And that's yeah. just, and I, I, I don't want to judge how anybody sees that because, you know, people are sincere in their belief. So I don't, I don't want to impress my belief on anybody else, but it is almost shocking to see how quickly a, per, a perception can change. Yeah. And that fits a, a lot of modern things. When, uh, when the, the Robert E. Lee statues were built, uh, there was a lot behind that. But part of that was just this idea that we had to get over the sectional differences of the Civil War. And so we were willing to accept some rehabilitation of the Confederate cause uh, in exchange for you know, not hating each other so much that we would fight the war again. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then now, uh, you know, that's, that's changed again. And one of the things that's always kind of fascinating to me is that Robert E. Lee always said he didn't think that they should put up statues of him. Uh, he never wanted that sort I of... I seem to recall he, him he saying something like that. Why, yeah. He said, I was fighting because of Virginia, but I... And, and, but uh, uh, if you look just briefly after the war, not very long after the war, you start seeing reunions where the Union troops and the Confederate troops, the veterans, were having their reunions together and shaking hands and hugging each other. They had overcome it. So, you know, there's this point where William Sherman would have said, yeah, put up statues of Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee would have said, no, don't put up statues of me. Uh, and now we're, <laughs> you know, we shifted. Yeah, and we've gone back and forth so many different ways. Yeah, and, and it's, I don't think it's absolutely fair to look at, you know, things that we venerated for various reasons in the past and ask, is this still relevant today? Or does it, you know, how does it impact this today? I think, I think it's a fair discussion. What I can say as and because I don't want to take a stand on statues, I can say as a historian, it is fascinating to watch how the perspective, the, the idea of a statue of a Confederate general has changed over time, how it was different in 1865 than it would have been in 1875 than it would have been in 1950 and how it is yeah. in the 2000s. And those, that's stunning. It's, it's an amazing change in, in, in culture. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, these are sensitive topics. I want to kind of acknowledge absolutely. that right on the top. I, I, I avoid them like the plague on my channel. I don't, yeah, I don't want to get into them because I don't want to turn people off of the story of history because yeah. politics, that's politics are up to the, how you interpret the history I talk about is supposed to be up to the viewer. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, even in my day, I've seen so many social norms in terms of the language that gets used, the words that are appropriate 10 years ago are totally not appropriate oh, yeah. now, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I, I've seen it happen so quickly and so much that um, I, I kind of go down this path of like, when, when people look at what people did, it's, you know, how's the right way to frame this? How do you judge somebody by going by the social norms that they went by 100 years yeah. ago or 200 years ago? And, and it's really easy to say that they were terrible people for doing whatever it is. I mean, obviously slavery comes to mind, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I always kind of think like, when, when somebody kind of starts talking about that, I'm like, I guarantee you, you're doing something today that somebody 200 years from now will yes, find it's out. Hate. It's a very fair point. Yeah. And it's, it's always true in history. If you judge, you know, judge historical figures by modern standards, though, I mean, in some, I mean, there were at the time of the Civil War, there were plenty of people who realized that slavery was wrong. And I mean, yeah. you can't say that was just, you wouldn't have known that. I mean, it was a real yeah. discussion at the time. It was a discussion at the time that they were, the Constitution was being ratified. Right, the yeah. discussion 
was over slavery. Uh, but it is, it is, I mean, when we can see that someone who was talking just you know, perfectly normal or maybe a comedian that was telling jokes that were perfectly within the realm of acceptability 10 years ago, and now their career is getting canceled because they said something yeah. 10 years ago. Or people get, they're getting, you never want to go on Twitter because you never know they're going to look back for 10 years of Twitter and find something, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years of tweets and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, it's, that is a, a constant foible in history. Uh, and sometimes I will, you know, people will say, hey, you're, you're judging out of time. And I'll say, well, I'm trying to present the controversy as it was in the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, you can't, you can't ignore it. You can't just say, well, it was, you know, slavery was, it was okay to be a Nazi and hurt Jews in the camps and kill them because that's just what Nazis did, right? Uh, I mean, you, you can't go that far. But on the other hand, you do have to take into account that people that we've made into heroes uh, were real people who probably did things that are not terribly heroic at points too. Right. Uh, right. And some of that is very common for the time. I mean, George, George Washington's false teeth were quite possibly, based on some records and some books, made from teeth that he had his, uh, 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 his overseer pay slaves to pull out teeth in order to make his false teeth. Uh, and at the time, no one would have thought anything about that. As a matter of fact, they might have thought it was a kindness to pay someone a dollar for their tooth. Uh, and it's, it, it, so how do you judge that today? I mean, it's, yeah. I, I just, I try to tell the story and let people decide whether they're going to consider the historical context yeah. or whether they're going to think about it in modern terms or however they want to interpret that, uh, because I, I want to leave that to the, to the viewer. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's great to, you know, idolize people who were ahead of their time, the abolitionists around the Revolutionary War, the people who yeah, knew absolutely. that slavery was wrong were speaking out against it way back then. We should definitely like put them up on a pedestal. But I think it's, I, I, I debate whether or not it's fair to judge somebody for going on the social norms at the time. You know, it is. It's always a challenge, and it's uh, all I can say is that there's no simple answer for that from history. Right. Uh, you find out a lot of these say early abolitionists uh, prior to the Civil War also hated uh, immigration. So the the anti the anti immigrant crowd were often the abolitionist crowd. So I mean, there's there's you know there's all sorts of surprises when you yeah. get there, and uh, there's there's very few true angels in history because there's very few true angels in the world. Yeah, uh, and it is, but I, I agree. I mean, it's a part of, and that's why you're always walking that line. Part of you saying, how do we judge? I mean, you know, Columbus was, you know, what you would expect from pretty much any European that showed up in a boat, uh, and do we? <laughs> be, how do we judge that by today? I mean, there's yeah. uh, his his descendants will tell you he was nicer than the people that followed. Uh, and that's that's an interesting way to judge. He also, you know, when when people rebelled against him on Hispaniola, their noses cut off. So I mean, it's kind of hard. But you know, someone else might have cut off more noses or might have shot him or something. Uh, so it's it's you know, it's I mean, I uh, when we talk about say statues of Columbus, what I would say of Columbus is that uh, even though he was probably not the first to arrive in the New World from Europe, he was the one who stayed, and he's the one who mm -hmm. connected the old world and the new, and that is one of the most important events in human history. And whatever you want to say about terrible things that he did, I mean, he is the linchpin of one of the single most important events in human history. And uh, I, I can't see how we, we want to forget that. So the question is, how do we measure that? And is it meaningful? And it's tough. How do you say, I mean, how do we judge Columbus today by, you know, what the, the norms of the time or what was going on at the time? And how do you rethink what had happened if he had, if it had been someone else? Or if, if it had been another hundred years uh, before some, before that connection was made? Uh, you know, it's, you can talk about horrible things that came from that without without saying, oh, you know what, this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And you know, yeah. the bottom line is, no matter what you think should have happened, it happened. Yeah. It's history. Well, and those are difficult conversations, but uh, that they are that. But they're fair conversations. Uh, if yeah. you, if you are 
able to have a conversation, it's kind of hard today, but if you're able to have a conversation, they're fair conversations. And it's good that we're having the conversation right, uh, without taking yeah. sides. It's good that we're having the conversation. I mean, not just because that's how we move forward and evolve and whatnot, but, but that makes history so much more interesting to me. You know, Absolutely. again, it's just, it adds so much more context and layers to everything. Uh, we have to understand the past, to understand our present, to help to try to plan our future. And, and so if you can't connect the history to the, to the present, uh, it loses a lot. I mean, you can still just have a good, I don't know that Horace Devere Cole is changing anything we're doing today. It's still really fun to hear that he brought his cousin, Virginia Woolf, the author of Virginia Woolf, he brought her on dressed in a beard as an Abyssinian diplomat. And her cousin, <laughs> her cousin was an officer on the boat, was an officer on the dreadnought. And he never figured out that that was his female cousin standing next to him in a beard. Oh, wow. Uh, and, that's and a, so that's a good disguise. Story, and I don't know that, it, that that's relevant to the modern times at all. But, so sometimes history is just a good yarn, you know, regardless of anything else. But uh, yeah. very often, I mean, what makes it so relevant is because we can look and say, you know, if nothing else, you can say that even then, 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, they were just people. And they were very mm -hmm. like us because we're still just people. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about um, some travel that you might have done because you did a video. Um, I think it was actually an older one. I just kind of ran across it the other day that you went to some castle in Wales. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? We, well, I, mean, I, I don't get to travel. And I, one of the disappointments of the COVID year is that I've missed yeah. a lot of really good travel that we had scheduled because people were asking us to come out right. and do some stuff. Uh, uh, and we uh, we visited. Uh, if you if you really watch the channel, you'll find out I'm kind of an Anglophile. I really do talk like talking about English history, even though I always get yelled at because whatever you do in England, you've mispronounced the place name. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to that, it, I always say that when it comes to English place names, the English doggedly refuse to speak English. Uh, and but but we spent a lot of time. Because they come from really like old English, it. probably. Yeah, well, actually, I did a great episode uh, on the uh, the great vowel shift. There's there's a reason some of this occurred. Yeah. There was a there was a significant change in English language over a period of about a hundred years, and there's reasons for it. But part of the problem is a number of these uh, place names they were pronouncing them that way before the vowel shift. Right. And and so there's there's reasons for it. But so yeah, we were at a we were at a castle in Wales. That was. Uh, um, uh, that was, gosh darn it, I'm going to forget the name of it, but that was a particular keep. It's a Norman keep. It's still yeah. in the hands of the family that built the thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, you said that. And it's really well preserved. It's uh, Headingham Castle. That's what it is. Okay. If, if you're headed out, uh, then Headingham Castle is, is well worth a visit. I've got other castles that we plan to talk about. Uh, and uh, But yeah, uh, the reason that we were out for that is that I was out to an astounding museum down in Dorset called the Tank Museum. That's one of the best art armor collections in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I, I had been to the tank museum. We went and visited the tank museum just because I have some other, you know, military history buff buddies. And we had a really good time. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know how some you have, I would tell my, my friend Brad was that we were, the museum hadn't opened yet. So we were, we were there, you know, waiting for the doors to open. Uh, that's how the tour of You're people, one of we those were, guys. We're looking at, they have a lot of tanks outside. So we're looking at those. Well, they were working on one over in a workshop and my buddy Brad was up against the chain link fence like this, you know, like a kid trying to get into the baseball game. And one of the guys that was in charge of restoration saw him doing that and invited us for a tour behind the scenes to see the tanks that don't usually oh, display. No. So, I mean, I loved the tank museum. So that was before I started the history guy. So mm -hmm. a couple of years later, I get this, uh, I get this uh, uh, email from Ross Skelton. And uh, hi, Ross, if you're ever on this, I hope you see it. She's fantastic. Anyway, she says, I don't know if you've ever heard of us. She, she of course, said that in an English accent, but I won't try it. She said, I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of us, but we're the tank museum in Dorset. And she said, would you come make a, 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 an episode for our YouTube channel? 
and I'm like, let me check my calendar. When oh, can I get cool? Yeah, yeah. And they didn't they didn't pay for my travel or anything like that. They just let me come out and <laughs> sit in their tanks and talk about their tanks. And they did their film. It was fantastic. It was fun. Uh, and I got to be in a in a running tank, which was a, which is a lot of fun. But they had it. Awesome. They I'm, they were just scared I would take it because they know me. Uh, <laughs> and so they had someone else in the tank with me, making sure I didn't steal the tank. But I got I got to. He's an American. He'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Don't you can't put him in a running tank. There's too much <laughs> risk there. It was it was a hoot and a half. And while we were out, we we visited a lot of places down there in in uh, Southwest England and Wales, and and uh, did quite a few episodes, a couple of travel logs. Uh, 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 about some of the stuff that we saw there, there's really great stuff down there, and we had a we had a really good time, you know, stomping around some castles and and some uh, even more ancient sites than that, and Glastonbury, and, and so it was a lot of fun. And the Tank Museum was a hoot and a half. And if you are if you are in England, uh, you really should head down to Dorset, even if you're not a big fan of tanks, just because it's just amazing how many tanks they can shove into a building. Uh, and uh, and we were supposed to be back this year. They were going to have me. They they have something called Tank Fest where they go and drive the tanks around and. Everybody who likes tanks comes to see it. And I was supposed to be speaking, presenting at Tank Fest this year. And it turns out, of course, it got, yeah. got canceled. It officially was moved to the fall and then they, and they just canceled it. So hopefully next June, if you go to Tank Fest, the history guy will be talking about, about tanks. I look forward to trying. That was again. probably a long answer to that question, wasn't it? Well, no, where I was going with that was um, when, when you do travel, do you try to find... Like oh, historical places, like is that kind of part of the? Absolutely. The... I mean, first of all, I I can write those off. I mean, I can write off the travel if I'm oh, researching okay. for the history guy. So, but I Very do. Pragmatic. I, I, I always, long before the history guy, I tried to whenever you had time to go. You know, because I love history and I, right. I love old. I, I mean, there's uh, the the Alton Museum, which is where we got a lot of the stuff about Robert Wadlow. is a small museum, and uh, even before COVID, you kind of had to do it by appointment. The fantastic museum. There's amazing stuff in there, and there's some really amazing stuff that happened up in, in Alton. The, the Lovejoy was up in Alton. The uh, the uh, editor who was uh, considered the first casualty of the Civil War because because they killed him for writing abolitionist newspapers. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the I mean, and Robert Wadlow lived there, and and then they had a lot of other stuff. It was really a lot of fun. There's a little town over here called Benton, uh, not too far from where we are, about 100 miles from where we are. We went over to Benton, uh, and. Uh, uh, it was part of during the the uh, prohibition era there were these bootlegging wars going on and there was this crazy guy who he built his own tank and wore an armored vest and was this bootlegger in southern illinois and they he was hanged in benton and he was the and so we went to benton museum to see about that but we get there and we also find out the first time that a a beetle came to the united states and live did a concert was actually george harrison visiting his sent his sister who lived in benton uh, and there's that's a cool piece, you know. So so we're there to talk about you know hanging this bootlegger, and then we also get to talk about uh, and there's some Civil War stuff there. Uh, General Butler, the guy who started the uh, Memorial Day, uh, was from Benton, and his uniforms in that little museum. So that's a great little museum. So all the time we try to, and then sometimes like I I, I have an aunt and uncle that live in Galveston, Texas, which I hope right now is not underwater. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It was. They were getting out of town just the other day, but uh, uh, there's a there's a really great park there, which I hope is not damaged by the hurricane because it has in the past. But they've got a World War II submarine and they've got a World War II destroyer escort uh, in this little park. And if you stand in my uncle's backyard, you can look across the bay to Pelican Island where this park is. So we went there. Uh, uh, I was visiting my aunt and uncle there, and we were very much researching in the Galveston area for the history guy while we were visiting. And we went. I'd been there as a child, and uh, we went back out there. Uh, and I uh, got to walk through the, the the museum there, or the the uh, submarine, which is the USS Kavala, which was a, a World War II 
submarine did something very important in the Second World War, and then it was used up into the 1970s. And so I made a nice episode about uh, uh, when the Kabbalah sank the Chicago, which is what it did in the Second World War. Uh, and I was contacted by the, uh, the alumni association of people who served on that submarine. So I was supposed to, in March, go out and talk to them about the World War II history of the Kabbalah. And uh, we didn't get to because of COVID, and hopefully we'll be able to do that next year. But I mean, how extraordinary that is, that I was just a tourist who walked through their boat, and then because I made this episode and talked about it, now I get to go meet those people. And it was daunting, because I'm like, I'm going to talk to people who served on a submarine, but they history yeah. of that submarine. But I mean, that's a great challenge to me, because it means I get to go research really fun, really obscure stuff and go talk to people. And that's, that's what happens. So just yeah. the other day, we got a note uh, in the mail that said, uh, you've got a bunch of fans who serve on the USS Constitution, which is the you know, old Ironsides in Boston yeah. Harbor. Yeah. And, and they said, will you come out sometime and visit us and we'll let you fire one of the cannons. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> yes. Yeah, those, those are the little intangible benefits of doing what we do. Like getting people to out to you yeah. like that. People oh, mail you, God. you know, big helmet, space helmets and ask right. you to fire a cannon for them. And I, I will, I, I, if, they, if they ever see this, I will be out there when soon as we can get out there because I will be on the Constitution and I will fire every cannon you let me fire. That's cool. So have you ever? It'll be um, like the tank museum. They won't let me near them because they're afraid I'm going to steal the ship. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do it's it's definitely one of the standout like you know events was um, before I did YouTube for a while I was I was really making a go at doing filmmaking and and being a scriptwriter and um, I got hired for a job and unfortunately you know the financing never happened so it didn't quite you know kind of fell through but. I got to do a lot of research for it, but it was about the USS Franklin mm -hmm. in World War II. Are you familiar with that one? Um, yeah, it was uh, the Franklin. Uh, uh, it was an aircraft carrier. Yeah, it was an aircraft carrier. And in, in the, uh, the uh, Battle of Saipan, the Franklin was uh, hit by a Japanese uh, right. bomber. It wasn't a kamikaze, it was a bomber. And uh, terrible <laughs> fires aboard the Franklin. They were lucky to save the Franklin. Yeah, it's a really interesting. It, it had like a 60 degree list. Yeah, uh, and they managed to save that ship. Yeah, it's, it was it was the most damaged ship to come home. Yeah, it was yeah said. the most most damaged ship that, that didn't sink. Yeah, yeah, uh, I got to interview a bunch of the guys that served on it. Oh, that's fantastic! They, they, um, I forget some somebody was trying to get a film made about it, and I got brought in, and so I they, they had a, a reunion in Pensacola, so I got to go and <clears throat> got to go and interview a lot of these guys and get their stories, and it was just. It was amazing, just just hearing. Yeah, uh, that's one of those where they say that you know, uncommon valor was a common trait, and uh, of yeah. the uh, that was the first uh, 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 chaplain to receive the Medal of Honor. Was right, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, and I can't imagine the the heroism it took to save that boat on the, and those fires and everything going on, and you know, pulling well, friends. It's unfortunate that the film didn't happen, and maybe it will someday because it's it was it would be super cinematic because there was there was a a part of the story where and I don't remember the name of the other ship, but in order to like you said, it had a, a sixty degree list and it was mm -hmm. getting worse, and this other ship came up, another American ship came up and smashed into the side of it to keep it yeah, from it tipping over. And those, I'm gonna I'm gonna forget the name of that too. But it was actually a, a sister ship. The Franklin was uh, was a carrier, but it was a fast carrier, so it was built on a, a hull that also was used for cruisers. And I and I believe that the mm -hmm. ship that that was saving the Franklin had the same hull type that when they saved it. But yeah, they actually pulled up. And there's some there's some examples of that too. The uh, uh, USS Princeton during the Battle of Leyte uh, took a bunch of damage and was exploding. And actually the ships that came to its rescue when it exploded took a lot of damage too. So mm. it was, you, know, you were risking your life to go try to save another ship and they did it. Yeah. And especially there at Saipan where they were facing hundreds and hundreds of kamikaze. We just did an episode on that. Not 
too long ago in the, the naval battle off of Saipan. Uh, there's just all these, I mean, you're, the, the effort and the heroism required to try to save these ships that were taking all this grievous damage. It's just extraordinary yeah. heroism. Uh, that was the deadliest battle in the history of the United States Navy with Saipan. Wow. Uh, and they, they never really saw the Japanese Navy. The, the only part where the Japanese Navy itself kind of in, uh, tried to do anything was they tried to send the Yamato down and was caught by air and sunk it. So we never saw Japanese ships. And yet it was because of the air attack, because of the kamikaze, that it, it, every day was just heroism trying to save another ship that had been hit six times by guys with bombs. And, they, and it's amazing what, what they saved. And it's amazing uh, how many ships, there were like over 300 ships damaged in that, in that battle. So frankly, the, it's a telling story, yeah. One of the stories that, for obvious reasons, just got stuck in my mind was, was one of them was talking about there had already been some explosions and stuff, you know, they were like running around and stuff. Anyway, he was he was going down a ladder, you know how they kind of like just slide down the ladder. Mm -hmm. And he, he was going down and he said he got about halfway down and he got stuck. Like his feet hit something and he, he couldn't go any further down and he didn't know why. And he looked down and he saw that it was another crew member who had been burnt and his hands were on the, the ladder and that's what his feet were on was these like charred oh, yeah. remains of this guy. And I was like, oh Perfect. my God, like how do you come back home and be a normal person after that? You know, and after the Second World War, we never we didn't really think about that. We didn't think about PTSD. If you hear uh, what you what you very commonly hear is, I'll say, my grandpa never talked about his experience during mm -hmm. the war, and because what's what we told him, he just said, bottle it up. And you have to wonder how many people that affected and, and how powerfully it affected them. And boy, that's a, I mean, it's just got to be terrifying. That yeah. partly because it was uh, uh, the way the attacks came, because there were planes coming in. That quite a few of the, the injuries during that battle were, were fire, were, were, were heat, and, and so burns are just terrible. And because we had aviation fuel burning and you have bombs burning and you have planes deliberately clash, crashing full of aviation fuel. Uh, and it's, it's, it's horrible to think about. And it's, I just, you can't imagine the generation that did that. Mm -hmm. And that they got on those ships and, and, uh, and, and it came back from those ships and, and, and then you know continued to build the nation. It's, it's extraordinary. And I just, I don't think, I mean, we're coming off, you know, two decades of war. We've got plenty of veterans in the nation, but the scale was just so much larger. So everybody you knew, someone had been there. And, and uh, yeah, it's, so that's one of the reasons to talk about, I'm mean, getting misty here. It's one of the reasons to talk about history. These are, these are incredible people who did incredible things. Uh, and it's, you know, it's hard to imagine how we all got so mad at each other that we would engage in that as, yeah. as you know, the world's events, is that we're all going to go shoot each other like that. But it makes for a lot of uh, compelling history, a lot of stories of heroism and, and uh, stories of people saving each other. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's I agree. easy to get sucked I, I mean, into to military like, history, I bet. Yeah. It is, and it's, it's, that's one of the reasons I like doing what I'm doing is that if, if I can, you know, bring attention to someone who, who might otherwise be forgotten, and that's, yeah. that's a really powerful thing to do. My wife, um, her, her grandfather, she was talking about how like she didn't like staying over at his house because he was a World War II vet and he would have, I guess, night terrors and wake up screaming in the middle of the night and it would scare her. And, and like she would talk to her grandmother and her grandmother was just like, yeah, he just, he just does that, you know. But of course, like you said, he never talked about it, but clearly still processing, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that was true. And also the Korean War veterans and the Vietnam veterans. And I, I mean, it's, it's relatively recently. I mean, we still don't know how to deal with it with our current, you know, veterans coming home. 
uh, but at least now we we think about it. We, we right, realize yeah. that's an issue, and we didn't even really pay attention to that at the time. You know, it was you were supposed to just be stoic and just you know suck it up and come home and 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 not change. And a lot of them did. Yeah. Well, to lighten the mood a little bit, um, <laughs> <laughs> we um, wandered down a dark path there, didn't we? I know, right? We well, started talking about disaster. Stuff, you know. Um, you were talking about travel. Or we were talking about travel just a second ago. Um, being in Texas. I'm from Dallas. I don't, I don't know if you knew that, but um, I don't know. Anything that's a hundred years old is ancient around here. You know, like there's, there's not a lot of old history. I mean, there is some from like the 1830s. That's when the revolution was and whatnot. Uh, the, the Texas forts trail that includes the Alamo and San Jacinto and all that. That's like, of course, when I was a kid, we had to go see those and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but you know, uh, now I kind of want to go back and check it out again. But um, I, whenever I do go to the East coast and especially go to Europe, I mean, I, I had a beer mm -hmm. in London at a pub that's older than my country. It's just like, how do you process? Oh, absolutely. That? There might've been serving beer, you know, before the country. Yeah. We, we talked about that. We talked about Hedingham castle. They, they built a new bridge because the queen, the king visited. Uh, and that bridge was 900 years newer than the castle and 200 years older than the United States. That's yeah. That's, that's true. I'm going to, I forget who it was. So I'm, 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 I'm going to, miscrediting somebody. It was a Scottish comedian once and I saw uh, on TV and, and so he said he was in uh, Miami and someone said, this building's been restored to what it was like in 1954. Oh, um, Eddie Izzard. Talk. And, and he said, I'm from Scotland. There's a town called Newbridge. And the new bridge was built in like, you know, 1100 AD and the old bridge is still there. Yeah. <laughs> we, can't, we can't even, yeah. So it's, if yeah. you take a shovel in the United Kingdom, you could come up with, with a thousand years of history. And of course, if you go to the Middle East, then you're going to find a, a, you know, a thousand years more. So yeah, we, uh, I, and it's not, I mean, I live near Cahokia Mounds, which was a, a Mississippian culture. And so we've got something that at its time was bigger than London, was massive, and it's very nearby and, and you know, prehistory. Uh, so yeah. there's lots of that in the United States. But it's true that American, I mean, we talk about American history, you know, 1700s. Uh, you know, like that was, you know, wow, we're way back in time. And, and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, we can't even conceive really of, of, of Europe. And I don't know how you teach history in Europe, because it's hard to teach, you know, 250 years of American history, or 245 years of American history, or whatever. How do you, how do you, how do you teach history in the United Kingdom and give any sort of credit to the, the length of that history? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, yeah, it's crazy, because I think Americans kind of tend to, you know, not really get what history yeah. really means, how old history really is. Well, but, but again, like even, even in the United States, when I go to the East Coast, there's, mm -hmm. there's more of the history that I was taught anyway, you know, like on display mm -hmm. and just out there. Uh, the thing that I'm specifically thinking of, and I didn't know if you knew about this story or not, but I thought I would throw it at you. Um, I, again, I was doing filmmaking for a while. I went to a film festival in Woods Hole, um, in Massachusetts, and I'm staying at this uh, bread and breakfast that they set me up in. And one day I was, I was walking out and, and they had this, um, you know, like a white picket fence kind of thing. And the, and, and the gate was being held open by this iron ball on a chain. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think anything of it, but then they had a sign next to it. And I stopped and read it one day. And it, the, that ball was a cannonball from the revolutionary war. From the revolution. Yeah. And I'm like, they're using it as a doorstop. Uh -huh. You know, and, and that just and they might have been using it as a doorstop for a hundred years. I, I, know, went right? to, I had some business in Maine once, and so the, the, the my colleague there with the anthem took me out. And the first thing we looked at was this lighthouse that had been ordered by George Washington. 
I'm like, wow, we don't get that out in Colorado. They don't, yeah. they don't do that out here in the West. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, it's extraordinary. And that's, I mean, and so it's, there are people living in houses in England that were built in the 12th century, you know, and they're, yeah. you know, they still have the same slate roof. They're afraid the hail might come and damage the slate roof. Uh, and it's, 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 yeah, it's different wherever you go. What appears to be ancient history is, is, is not. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's cool. It's a, it's when you travel, you really get a feeling for that. And if you really want to see it, go to Malta or go to Egypt. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and see, you know, what it's you know people who are literally stomping around on stuff that you know people have been living in this town for two thousand years. Uh, we went to Athens last year, and uh, yeah, you're just walking around, and and then there would suddenly be like a glass section of the sidewalk, and you look down, and there's just ruins down there. There's just you know, two thousand uh -huh. old ruins just it's in front of the Gap. You know? Yeah, yeah, in front of the cap. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing to see how the two connect to each other too. I mean, because it's modern and it's ancient. But right. yeah, you're right. I mean, you can't, and so we can't imagine. I mean, and the stuff that we see is you know the the most famous, the most preserved stuff. But it's really something you're just living around. You could literally be out digging yeah. in your garden and come up with something that's that's yeah. a couple thousand years old. Hard to, it's kind of hard to put that all together. Well, this this story that I heard from Woods Hole, I just wanted to share it because I always thought it was really interesting. Um, so yeah, Revolutionary War, the story was that there was a ship called the, um, the Nimrod. It was a British ship. And I remember that stuck out to me because I was wondering if like, is that, is that where the pejorative term of that name came from? But, um, but no, the story was that it was a Revolutionary War times and all the men were uh, out training in a field somewhere, probably down the road. And while they were out training, this British ship came and attacked the town and the women of the town fought off the British and won. While the men were out training for war, the women were actually fighting this, this, this battle anyway. Wow, um, I have to sit on that. Uh, well, it was, it, was, it was at Woods Hole, but I feel like it wasn't specifically in Woods Hole. It was like in a little suburb or something, but, but the, the ship was named the Nimrod. I remember that. I'll figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> that was a fun story. No, that's great. That's, I mean, that's the sort of thing, and you can find that you go into any town, uh, and a town has its history, and sometimes that history is really, really interesting, mm -hmm. uh, and no one else would know it, and that's a lot of fun. So it's fun when you travel, even if you're in a, just a small town, if you can come in and go see the, their local history museum. Sometimes you're just, you're stunned at what there is to find, and that's part of what I do that's fun. Yeah. So, I mean, we focus on some larger stuff, too, but I mean, I love to do little bits of local history that, that, are, that are still really good stories. Yeah. Lore. Local lore. Hey, Future Joe here. I just wanted to jump in real quick because this story that I just told Lance about the Nimrod, first of all, it took place in Falmouth, Massachusetts. That was the name of the town that I couldn't remember uh, in the middle of our conversation. But uh, after we talked about this, I went to see if I could find some articles about it, some supporting documentation, whatever, just because I thought it might be a cool video for him. And I could not find it anywhere. Now I know that somebody told me this story while I was there and I don't know, maybe they were just making it up. Maybe it was just a piece of local lore, but it wasn't really true or anything. Um, I wanted to just kind of put this out there and clarify that it might not have actually happened. It might've just been a story that I was told, but if it did happen, I couldn't find any uh, supporting documents about it. So if anybody happens to be really knowledgeable on the lore of Falmouth, Massachusetts, and can uh, can back me up on this, uh, please reach out to me on Twitter or wherever because I'm I'm really curious whether or not I'm just going crazy. But uh, I wanted to kind of clarify that. And so yeah, let's let's get back to the interview. We we did one on uh, on a, a little battle on the Isle of Jersey. 
or no, the island Guernsey. Uh, and, uh, and I immediately were getting comments back from people in Guernsey who said, oh, wow, I've always wondered when you were going to cover this. And I'm like, I had no idea I had hands on the island. <laughs> but we do. And they notice right away when you post something about Guernsey. Yeah. That's cool. Um, oh, oh, so I did a video a while back, again, talking about stories that like I thought I knew and then I researched it and it turned out to be something totally different. Have you ever done a video on H.H. Holmes, the serial killer? Oh, oh no, I've not done a video on him. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, okay. I t- what, what, we, what we do when we hear that sort of thing is then we go try to find someone more obscure than H.H. Holmes. But yeah, oh. that was the guy that during the World's Fair would just take in lodgers and then yeah. Walk him on the head and throw him in his basement. And yeah, yeah. creepy dude. The, the yeah. murder castle. Um, well, there's a book called Devil in the White City that was all about it. And it kind of uh, kind of continued this story of him like having this labyrinthine uh, murder castle that he had created and guests to the Columbian exp- uh, Exposition would come in and they, you know, they would come in and never be seen again kind of thing. Yep, yeah. um, but, but after researching it, and I, I do have a writer that I was working with on that one, uh, it turned out to be a totally different story. Like he, he was really just a grifter and a, and a scam artist and he did murder some people, but it wasn't like hundreds in this, you know, murder castle. Like they, you know, like the story says he actually, it's, it's actually an amazing story. I mean, not, not to point you toward one of my videos or anything, but but it was, uh, check it out. Yeah. No, he, he right, like that happens. That happens a lot. There are stories that I've told forever as history stories, like ah, and then I go and research them, and, and I'm not quite right on it. And I mentioned visiting the Kavala. Ten minutes after getting inside the ship, I got into an argument with one of the docents because uh, <laughs> I thought he was completely misleading me. And then when I went and did the research, of course, the docent was absolutely right. I was absolutely wrong. I apologize if you were there. <laughs> He's that idiot that was yelling at me. But uh, we didn't really get a yelling match. But uh, it's easy. Uh, you, you know, you, the, the history you just sort of catch floating through the air uh, is typically going to be something that might not quite be the, and then when you go and research it, you find out, wow, that's, that could be a little different. And then even then, you'll have people who were there saying, oh, you know, that you'll have two different people at the event giving, you know, different testimony about what was going on. So it is, it is one of the fun things about doing what I do is that you get to go kind of try to dig through that. And sometimes you don't have answers. Sometimes, you know, there's disagreements over mm-hmm. what went on, but that's interesting to you know to find out that he's not necessarily what you what you heard him to be you know, or what was the you know the, the well, first thing. In the, but the true you know, story was on, even on more interesting. TV. I thought that that he. Um, yeah, yeah. The true story. The true story is more interesting. Yeah. Very often, the true story is much more interesting than whatever they dramatize it with. When they do do uh, Hollywood films about history, I don't. They'll deviate from history, and I'm like, why did you deviate? Because the, the not not because I'm like oh you know fanboy you can't but I, I I'm like you know the, the real story was more interesting. Sure. Why yeah. didn't you do the more interesting story? Well, and well, that, that that happens a lot in screen. So there's very little that you see history on film that you know you don't look at it and say wow this isn't this isn't really great history and I don't know why because the history is really cool. I mean I can understand. Uh, you know, um, exaggerating or whatever for uh, for story effect and whatnot. But when the story itself is is more interesting, it's like you're you're missing. Yeah, out I here. don't know. I don't know why you don't stick with it because uh, because yeah. there's so many compelling stories in history that are you know better than fiction. I mean, just stranger than fiction. And, yeah. and you couldn't have made that stuff up, uh, and, and then it would have the the force behind it that it really did happen. Well, I imagine um, doing your channel. It's kind of like me covering science. It's like there's no end to it. There's, there's, you know, oh, I'll never run out of episode of I do. Subjects. We get another 30, 40, 50 episode suggestions. Yeah. So I will never, at three a week, I will, I will die long before I run out of time. 
Yeah. And you cover like, um, like you did one in the history of screwdrivers the other day and, 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 uh, <laughs> one of our most popular episodes. Well, actually that's a history of a particular screwdriver. It's not even about screwdrivers. It was just this, someone had sent me this article about why they use a different screwdriver in Canada than we use in the United States. I'm like, oh, oh that's okay. kind of interesting. That is our most popular episode ever. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> is, is why they use a different screwdriver in Canada than they use in the United States. It's an interesting story. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we do, yeah, I do, you know, one day I'm talking about World War II and the next day I'm talking about the history of cats. So yeah. I mean, it's... But that's the thing though, like these these stories, um, especially when it's something that has to do with something we, we use every day, like like a screwdriver or, mm -hmm. you know, just every everyday stuff, like how the history of the coffee mug, how did this come about? You know, there, there's probably something interesting there that people don't know about, but it kind of Absolutely. gives a whole new context now every time you're drinking your coffee. Who would have guessed that the history of dandelions was something to research? And it was just fascinating. Mm. We brought, wherever people went, we took dandelions with us and we used to eat the things. And now, you know, now we try to get rid of them. Yeah. So it, absolutely, yeah. And that's, it, so I will sometimes be sitting around and I'll just be like looking at something on my desk saying, I wonder what the history of that is so we can come up with, you know, and we've got a lot, you know, we've got history of stainless steel and history of asbestos and, and history oh, sure, of helium, yeah. which is a really interesting scientific study of, of how, how we discovered helium and started using helium. And, you know, you know, it's really all fascinating stuff. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can tell, I can tell a story about just, you know, something that happened. I can tell a story about a war. I can tell a story about something that's just common every day that you don't know the history behind. That's a lot of fun. It's part of the fun part of history. And very often it's not something I knew all that much about until we decided to do an episode on it. And then we, you know, yeah. research. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I love your channel. Um, it, it keeps me endlessly entertained. I'm probably, mm -hmm. I, I need to record a video for my channel, but I'll probably wind up watching a couple of years before I, cause it's just up there now. Actually, well, I, I to, saw that you did honestly, that video on Galveston. I, I, I hadn't watch. heard of your channel until you contacted me. So I have, I've been watching a little bit of your channel. I need to watch much more of it because it's a great channel too, but I'm very oh, sorry. You. you knew who I was. I didn't know who you were when the email came in. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, now, I mean, our, our channels are pretty similar size at this point. And, and, you know, yeah, pretty, yeah. um, once, well, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to start reaching out and talking to, to other creators like you is that, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I'm kind of somebody people would return the emails from now, you know? <laughs> and so, and so like, if I have a chance to meet really interesting people and have these kinds of cool conversations, I'd be missing out if I didn't, you know, take advantage of that. So that's kind of what, what this you is get, all about. You get some notoriety from YouTube uh, and you're a big enough channel, but you're, you're close to a million subscribers now, right? So you're, you're a big enough channel. I'm in the home stretch. They <laughs> want to be on there. And that's, that's, and I, that's, I get people like, you know, the USS constitution saying, come fire McCannon. Uh, and uh, so it is, it is, it's a great job. It really is. I don't know yeah. if people realize what a great job it is. I, and it gets some notoriety, which is a little weird. We get stuff in our mail sometimes and I'm like, how do you find my address? But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also, it's, you know, it's cool. I, I, I have to say I'm flattered whenever I run into someone who recognizes who I am. Cause it's not something I ever thought was, no, that's not something I was ever seeking. And it's always startling for me, uh, but it's also, you know, it's flattering. It's kind of cool. So Robin Williams one time, he, um, I forget what how he worded this exactly, but he was talking about how like when he was on Mork and Mindy, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I'm going to go with it. Um, he said when he was on Mork and Mindy, he got more like fan mail and whatnot uh, or more recognition or whatever than when he was in the movies. Um, and somebody was, he said that and they, they kind of pushed him on like, well, why, why was that? And he said, well, when you're on TV, you're in people's homes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I think about that in terms of YouTube, we're not just on people's, 
you know, in their, on their TVs now or in, in their homes, we're in their pockets yeah, on the are, phones yeah. and they're watching us on the toilet. You know, they're like, they're like sharing their most intimate moments with us kind of. And, yeah. um, yeah, and yeah, like you said, you kind of. Those times of their life. Yeah, we're, some of yeah. them, they're watching us as much as they watch their children. Exactly. Or, or put us on to entertain their children uh-huh. uh, or put them to sleep. But um, <laughs> they, uh, um, when you mentioned the micro fame a second ago, that's kind of what this is like. And, and I'll walk down the street 99% of the time, nobody knows who I am. But if somebody does see me that, that follows my channel, it's, it's like, I'm a celebrity to that one person, you know, yeah. and, and, and probably more so in a way than, than, than a movie star is because I'm not playing a character. I'm just being me. Yeah, you're just being you, you and know. you're much more approachable. And, and so, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It's, and we, those rare occasions when you run into someone with me, they usually recognize my voice uh, before they recognize me. Because I don't wear a bow tie when I'm out in public. I'm gonna say, so you uh, got your, you got your secret identity. Just yeah, remove so the bow tie. I pick up my book as my secret identity, but someone will, will hear my voice and they're like, is that history guy? Uh, and it's, it's, <laughs> It's cool because you can tell you've really, you've really touched them. But I, I, uh, I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, actually. I was in VFW. I'd, I'd, done, I, I'd done speaking engagement down in Austin, and I'd flown up to, off from Austin to VFW, and I was mm. waiting for the flight to San Francisco. And uh, the, uh, uh, this is kind of embarrassing. The St. Louis gate is right near McDonald's. So I was getting lunch at McDonald's. That's what I was doing in the airport at VFW. Uh, and I'm just sort of sitting there playing on my, on, on my uh, phone. And there's a guy, TSA, you know, his badge and everything. He's standing, he's also waiting for his McDonald's and he's, and he's staring at me. And I'm like, oh, you know, what I feel do? the eyes. Did I, did I accidentally bring cocaine or something? And, like, and, 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 Again? Big, and he says, oh my God, you're the history guy. And I was just so startled that in Dallas, uh, yeah. this TSA guy, and I, and I kind of didn't know how to react because I'm not used to, I'm not used to, to, you know, ha- having anybody recognize me. I think I managed to flush out a business card and give it to him. But uh, it's, it's, it's cool. It was just so surprising. But also, there was just such joy uh, when he saw me. And you're like, wow, that's, I had no idea that I was touching people to the point uh, mm-hmm. that, they, that they smile. I, I've had people tell me, you're the most famous person I've ever met. You know? <laughs> You've lived a sheltered life. I know, but, I was about to say, it's really sad, dude, sorry. Uh, but it's really cool that you can, you get to the point where you can make someone's day if they just yeah. recognize your voice. And that's, that's great, it's awesome. That, that is what gets me. It's like when, when taking five minutes to have a conversation with somebody gives them something they can tell their friends about for you know, weeks Absolutely. or whatever, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a crazy feeling. It is, yeah. and it brings them joy, which is yeah. which is really really cool. Yeah, it is a crazy feeling. I, I never aspired to be or thought I would be the sort of person that anybody would recognize, <laughs> unless they like went to high school. Like, are you the guy I went to high school with? Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't something I searched for, and it doesn't happen very often. And I hope yeah. it doesn't happen too often, you know. Uh, but uh, it's it's when it does, uh, it's it's cool because you it's really clear that the person that that knows you enough that they recognize you. Uh, that you're making them happy and that says that what you're doing is important and that's, that's what's better than that i mean what you know you can walk away and you can say i'm a youtuber and that might mean all sorts of things but if you say that i'm a youtuber and you know that when someone sees you they're like you changed my life in whatever little way that's cool and i get that all the time i get people that you know i was you know thank you because i was going crazy during COVID, and you're what or, or i'm uh, i have people tell me i mean i had knee surgery and you're what got me through this time yeah, when i couldn't go anywhere yeah, it's yeah, it's it's you, we get those and we get those a lot. I mean, you get yeah. the you get you know people sending you that stuff a lot when you're when you get enough that you got a lot of comments and that's for all the people who tell you that your bow tie looks stupid or you're pronouncing <laughs> this wrong. 
uh, you get a lot more people saying, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. And, and, you know, what more can you, aside from, you know, paying the rent, uh, what more can you want from a job than to touch someone so much that they're excited just to see it? And that's, it's cool. Yeah. I think Great my, job. it really is. My favorite email that I've gotten or the one that stands out really, I've gotten a lot of really nice ones, but, but this one, um, this one was the first one that made me feel like, wow, I'm really doing something good in the world. You know, um, it was, I did a video on nuclear fusion and, uh, you know, the, the progress is being made there. And, and, and the joke is, 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 has been for a long time now that nuclear fusion is 10 years away and always will be, you know? Uh -huh. Um, but anyway, I was kind of covering all the different ways it's being attacked and the progress is being made, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I got an email from a guy who was working on the Windelstein 7X project in Germany, which I had talked about in the video. And he, he thanked me for it. And he said, um, it's really been challenging. You know, there, there's that joke about it being always 10 years away. And you start to wonder, am I wasting my life doing this, you know? And he said, it's really discouraging when you see some of these older guys who have been working on it their whole lives when they start to die off. You know, and you're like, I don't want that to be me, you know, but, but he said something about like being in the weeds of doing that job all the time. He doesn't really see the, the bigger picture of, of the whole thing. And he said, after watching my video, he said he was, he was considering getting out of it and doing something else. But after watching my video, he decided to stay in that he felt like it was worth it afterwards. Oh I, I'm getting what a little story, weepy just yeah. talking about it. Like it was just like, oh my God, I, I made yeah. that effect on somebody and, you know, and I've had a lot of people say that, that watching my videos has kind of led them into doing science and engineering type stuff. And who knows what they might, yeah. you know, do. Yeah. So I might just be a goofy guy telling jokes and, yeah. and talking about science, but maybe I'm, maybe there's. Yeah, working out of, working out of your home effect. and, you know, doing, I mean, I don't know about you. I didn't think like, oh, this is career. I was just like, <laughs> hmm, this is right. Uh, and then you're touching people and changing their lives. Yeah. It's, Great. I get those all the time. Uh, I think that there's probably millions of YouTubers who get that sort of stuff all the time. And it's for all you want to talk about, you know, modern culture and uh, there's a lot of complaints or whatever. This is, it's extraordinary. It's something you, yeah. no other generation had this opportunity to go touch people in the way that we can touch people. Yeah. And uh, whether you're on YouTube, you know, walking your duck or whether you're on YouTube, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, talking about history or science or, or entertainment or whatever. I mean, there's people that that is, you know, that's what's keeping them afloat today. And that's, awesome yeah and, uh, you know, you, that's hard to do if you you know don't have a platform and so this platform is a really cool platform yeah and i think we share it seems like we share a lot of passion and we, we it sounds like we're in kind of in what we're doing with very similar interests and ideas yeah i sure hope that 10 years from now that i'm loving it as much as i love it now i can you imagine what youtube is going to be like 10 years from now as much as it's changed in the last 10 years yeah well in 10 years i'll be able to talk about it now like it was history so <laughs> we're living history all right, man. Um, I'll just I'll just cut out. I I, I never know how to start or end uh, interviews. <laughs> the the middle I'm pretty good with, but it's the start and end that I'm always like, I gotta be this professional, or whatever. I'll just I'll just kind of cut it out and then. You know, when, when in doubt, I always just say whatever it was deserves to be remembered. This interview, what this conversation deserves to be remembered. Deserves to be remembered. <laughs> All right, Lance. Well, yeah, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. All right. Take care, dude. Take care.
All right. Thanks again to Lance for doing this. I really did enjoy it. If you enjoyed it and you want to see more of this, please let me know. Probably the best way to do it would be on Twitter. I'm at, at Answers with Joe on Twitter. Um, reach out, share this on there if you want to, and um, let me know what you think. If you got some ideas for other people that you would like to see me talk to, it doesn't necessarily have to be YouTubers. Um, it could be anything. Um, I, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm in a place where I can talk to some interesting people and I want to, I want to take advantage of that. So uh, I would love to hear your feedback on it, but until then, thanks for listening. Um, I do hope you enjoyed it. And, um, thanks again to Lance for doing this and I will catch you next time. Thanks. <laughs>